Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the History of England, episode 45, Packing Up. If you're listening to this, it means that I have successfully managed to move my feed. The website, thehistoryofengland.com, thanks Chris, remains the home where you can still go and download and all that sort of thing, but the iTunes feed comes from somewhere else. If you're not listening to this, then we're into existential territory, so that's far too difficult for me to deal with. And at the end of the show, we also have an announcement. Lord Markovan and the Great British Coin Giveaway. But before we get to that, this week we're going to kick off the reign of Richard the Lionheart and after a few digressions and peregrinations, get him off to Sicily. So here we are in 1189 and Richard, he wants to go on crusade. I mean, he really wants to go on crusade. This is the big one, the one that shouted its name from the hilltops. It ticked all the Lionheart boxes, God, gold, glory and honour. The crusade was one of the things that Richard had been put on the earth to do and nothing was going to get in the way of him doing it. And happily, the crusade brought together in happy harmony his own desires and the responsibilities of a Christian monarch. So pretty much everything Richard does now is to get things ready so that he could leave. But there was one other thing that I reckon was worrying him, which oddly enough was the death of his father. I've no idea how bothered he was that his dad wasn't around anymore, but I rather fancy that he didn't cry out for his father in his sleep but I think that he suffered a certain amount of guilt from his own hand in that death, and even more, how this very same hand looked to the world outside. Richard knew that he'd done wrong in raising his hand against his father, so soon as he could, in 1189, he asked for absolution from the archbishops of Rouen and of Canterbury when he reached Normandy. And you won't be surprised to learn that both archbishops readily agreed. 
but there were definitely limits to the extent of this guilt. To Richard's mind, while he had offended God, he had not broken his code of honour. He had openly declared his rebellion in front of Henry and all his court, and this openness meant that he had broken no code of honour. He had declared his defiance. In his mind, this was completely different to the lords who had betrayed Henry in secret, chained sides without any warning. Now, I'm not sure how much Henry would have appreciated the difference, but this was important to Richard. So as far as Richard was concerned, those lords had broken the code of chivalry and honour, and as a result, he was very hard on them. Those that he thought had betrayed his father dishonourably had their estates taken away. Clerks who had done the same thing were fired. And meanwhile, he rewarded the men who had stuck by Henry, even though by so doing, they had opposed Richard. Now a prime example of this, of course, was William the Marshal. Despite having killed his horse beneath him, Richard, as one man of honour, recognised another, and he made William's fortune by giving him the hand of the heiress of Strigoi in marriage. William rushed back to get married so quickly that he actually tripped off the gangplank and fell in the drink on the way. Okay, so that was Richard's honour satisfied and guilt completely washed away. Getting ready to go on crusade, on the other hand, was a good deal more complicated. He needed to raise an army, which was complicated enough, but before he left he needed to make sure his realms would be safe while their ruler was away. This meant that he needed a competent administration, but it also meant that he needed to make sure he didn't leave any unhappy, rebellious barons who'd used his absence to revolt or declare for Philip. He started by enlisting his mother's help. Eleanor had been imprisoned by Henry until about 1183, and then released. But when Richard had revolted, Henry had taken the cautious approach and thrown her into jail again. So now Richard was able to set up the Great One's mother free. So now Richard was able to set the Great One's mother free, and use her still considerable influence to start to line up the major barons on his side. Eleanor's advice was to use those men who had opposed Henry, without, of course, transgressing Richard's sense of honour. So Robert, Earl of Leicester, was released from prison and restored to his lands, for example. Richard then rode from Fontevraud on the Loire to Rouen, where he was invested as Duke of Normandy on the 20th of July, and he received the fealty of the clergy and the people. And then he rode to the great castle at Gisors in the Vexin, Gisors which was the heartland of the Vexin and the traditional meeting place of the kings of England and France. At the meeting on the 22nd of July with Philip, Richard agreed to pay the 20,000 marks forced on Henry in the final treaty and also to pay an extra 4,000 marks. And he also agreed yet again to marry Philip's sister Alice and stop all the prevaricating and messing around. In this, in all probability, he was lying. But now was just not the time to tell Philip what had really been going on here. As I say, Richard has his very own view of the concept of honour and it was elastic enough to accommodate little white lies for reasons of state. So Richard had got back pretty much all of his father's lands, with a few piffling exceptions. It had cost him cash that he had preferred to use for his crusade, but basically he would have been pretty happy with the way things had started. And by the 13th of August 1188, he was in England, and a month later he was crowned in Westminster Abbey. This is our first detailed description of the coronation ceremony, and it was a grand occasion and make no mistake. Richard was preceded up the aisle by his greatest barons, men like William the Marshal, who carried the scepter of gold, Robert of Leicester with his massive gold spurs, and of course his brother John, Count of Mortain. Richard swore by the now traditional oath to support the church, exercise justice, and get rid of bad customs. 
He was then stripped to the waist and anointed with the holy oil by Baldwin, the Archbishop of Canterbury, over his head and his chest. Richard himself picked up the crown and gave it to the Archbishop, which may or may not be significant. The tradition later came to be for the Archbishop to pick the crown up, but the thought was that maybe Richard was making a point, that he was king in his own right rather than in the right of the church. On the other hand, maybe he was just being polite. Back down the aisle they went, where Richard changed into something lighter, and they all went for a magnificent slap-up meal. But while this was going on, London burned. Some of London's Jewish community came bringing gifts for the king. Unfortunately, the Christian onlookers took against the idea. The Jews were attacked and killed or wounded, and the mob went on the rampage into the city of London looking for trouble and more Jews. The trouble in London sparked off a wave of anti-Jewish violence at King's Lynn, Norwich, Lincoln, Stamford and elsewhere. The Jews had come to London from Rouen with William the Conqueror, but there's no evidence of Jews outside London actually until the 1140s. By 1194 there were communities in over 21 English cities, but the numbers in each were low and probably no more than 5,000 were in England altogether. There were no formal ghettos at this time, but of course they naturally tended to cluster together into communities. So the violence then culminated in the worst pogrom ever to occur in England. In March 1190, a fire started in York, and in the confusion, the Christian citizens attacked the Jewish community. The Jews fled for safety in Clifford's Tower, where the warden gave them safety. But unfortunately, the Jews didn't trust him. They thought he might be bribed by the mob and then betray them, so when he returned, they refused to let him back in. And so fear and mistrust led to even greater tragedy. The warden complained to the sheriff, who called out the militia, and by so doing raised the mob, who prepared to storm the castle, while meanwhile inside the castle a fire had started. Many of the Jews realised that their situation was hopeless, and fearing for the worst, many of them committed suicide. The men slit the throats of their wives and their families before killing themselves with hideous echoes of Masada in 70 BC. The few who remained begged for mercy, and were promised mercy if they converted only to be betrayed and butchered as soon as they came out of the gates. There were a couple of follow-ups to this grisly episode. Firstly, the leader of the Christian mob then led the crowd onto the cathedral where all the Jews' documents were burned, including, you won't be surprised to learn, all the records of their debts. And so religious bigotry, racial bigotry and financial self-interest all worked hand in hand. And secondly, the event apparently caused York to be cursed, a curse that was only lifted in 1990, when Lord Chief Rabbi Jacobowitz officially lifted it. Richard's reaction to the program at his coronation is a good illustration of the relationship between the Crown and the Jewish community. So to give him his due, Richard strongly disapproved. He had the rioters in London arrested and three of them hanged. He encouraged a terrified Jewish man who had converted to recant and return to Judaism. He sent letters into every shire, ordering that the Jews should be left in peace and he ensured that the crowd in York were pursued. The ringleader, for example, was forced to flee to Scotland for his life. The reason for Richard's fury was not necessarily that he was a gentle, open-minded kind of bloke. No, the attack on the Jews was an attack on his dignity and honour. This was because the Jews had the official protection of the king. A law book notes that Jews and all their properties are the king's. This protection was offered because the Jews as a non-Christian minority simply didn't fit into the baronial mechanism of protection. They had their own laws, so if a Jew was accused by a Christian, the case was heard by the Jews' fellows. They were considered and treated as a commune, a corporate entity which could deal directly with the authorities. Jews were buried in their own cemeteries outside the city walls. 
But all these freedoms and protection came at a price. And here's another reason for the king's special relationship. The Jews were a superb economic asset. They were his milch cow. Between 1186 and 1194, for example, these 5,000 people paid special levies of 20,000 marks. And John milked them in exactly the same way. The Jews, of course, were debarred from many occupations, and so they focused on money lending, and jolly successful they were too. Successful lenders such as Aaron of Lincoln had debts all over England, with the interest rates at hideous rates of 22, 44, and in one case 66% per year. And so they had yet another benefit for kings as a source of credit. So Richard, throughout his reign, did all he could to protect them. One response he made after the trouble at York was to ordain that the church should shadow all Jewish debt. So killing a Jew and burning their papers no longer got you out of trouble, it just transferred your trouble to the crown. The attitude of the church, meanwhile, was to tolerate Jews, but also to expose the error of their ways. The Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, for example, tried to force all Jews to wear two strips of white linen on their breasts. By and large, widespread exemptions were granted for Jews in England, but at, of course, a price. The church produced large numbers of polemical literature, and the tone of the church grew steadily more anti-Semitic as time went by. The chroniclers themselves reflect the general tone, so here's Richard of Devizes and his rather vicious recording of events at the coronation. On the day of the coronation, the Jews in the city of London began to be sacrificed to their father, the devil. Other towns and cities of the region emulated the faithful Londoners and with a like devotion sent those bloodsuckers bloodily to hell. It's clear from all of this that the Jewish community were an exposed and vulnerable minority. They faced the double jeopardy of being debt collectors and outside the Christian community. There was little escape. If they converted, they were required to give up all their money and land, and were cast adrift from their own communities, and became almost stateless. While the kings of England supported them, they usually managed to coexist, but once a king of England got into their debt, as did Edward I, their last protection would be gone. Jewish communities were one of the many ways in which towns stood out as exceptional in medieval England. Another, as we saw in the times of Stephen, was their growing desire for greater independence, especially in the case of London. And it's London which gives us our very first glimpse of social unrest. We've had absolutely none of this so far, not even a glimpse or a sniff. Despite the desperately deep inequalities in medieval society, there's not been a suspicion, not a hint of the thing. And we're going to have to search long and hard for it over the next few centuries too, I'm afraid. But in Richard's England, a man called William Fitzosborne gave us a very early taste of this particular elixir in 1196. William had returned from the Crusades and had fallen on hard times thrown out of his house by his brother. The chroniclers, royalists to the core, are basically telling us that he's a ne'er-do-well, not driven by the desire for social equity. But for whatever reason, William did take on the role of the advocate of the poor. The rich citizens of London, he argued, had avoided the heavy taxation of the reign, while the poor suffered. He grew his beard long as a sign of sympathy with the poor, and he became known as William Longbeard. He was a superb speaker, and he drew large crowds until over 50,000 of London's inhabitants were counted as his supporters. Here's a taste of his rhetoric. I am the saviour of the poor. Do ye, O poor, who have experienced the heaviness of rich man's hands, drink from my wells the waters of the doctrine of salvation, and ye may do this joyfully, for the time of your visitation is at hand. 
For I will divide the waters from the waters. The people are the waters. I will divide the humble from the haughty and the treacherous. I will separate the elect from the reprobate as light from the darkness. Rumours and fears circulated. Temperatures rose. Longbeard supporters were rumoured to be stockpiling kit to break into the houses of the rich and the famous. This is not something the rich and the famous are keen on. So the rich and the famous called on the forces of law and order. Longbeard did his best and appealed directly to Richard and even visited him in Normandy to assure him of his loyalty and to present his case. But none of this did him any good. Richard may have received him with sympathy, but Norman Angevin's society was not one for social equality and a good discussion about the rights of man. Hubert Walter, the justicier, found two well-off thugs and he arranged for them to attack Longbeard when he wasn't accompanied by his normal crowd of supporters. Longbeard was an ex-crusader and he was no pushover. He killed one of the noble thugs and he took refuge in St Mary Le Beau Church in the city. For four days he claimed sanctuary before Hubert lost patience, surrounded the church and set it on fire. Longbeard rushed out and was stabbed and beaten, dragged before the court and condemned. He was immediately dragged by horses to the gallows at Tyburn and hanged with nine of his companions. This, incidentally, is the first mention of Tyburn, a place at the west end of Oxford Street near to Marble Arch in London. It will become infamous as the place of execution for London's criminals and traitors, and so starts another bright and glorious thread of British history. But still, Longbeard's name continued to cause trouble. The London poor came to the site of the execution and they took away bits of soil soaked with his blood until they'd dug quite a hole. Once again, Hubert was forced to send the troops in before the whole affair finally blew over. But that's it. By way of class struggle, that's really all I can offer you. And it's not much, I know. Don't hold your breath for the next round would be my advice. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so that's the end of this rather large digression. So let's get Richard off to the Holy Land. Richard's been accused of deserting England, leaving a mess behind him. Which is harsh, because essentially the settlement that Richard left behind proved robust enough, 
and rebellion only broke out when Richard was captured and held for ransom, which was pretty unexpected. And even then, his system was flexible enough to survive. So Richard had three jobs. One, raise money for his crusader army and get the army prepared and provisioned. Number two, set up a robust administration. And number three, make sure all his borders would be safe while he was away, which included dealing with the younger brother issue. Now, as my brother will confirm, younger brothers are normally a problem. And John, in this case, was a problem. He was now 24 years old and called Lackland because, you guessed it, he didn't have any land. Many of these jobs needed cash. Richard's need of cash and his rather flippant cavalier attitude won him a reputation for greed and a reputation that he thought of England only as a source of money for his adventures. But bear in mind he's getting cash together to raise an army for the defence of Christendom. And this, after all, was supposed to be the highest duty of the Christian monarch. So Richard had some cash already. You may remember that in 1188 Henry II had raised the Saladin tithe, a special tax for the Crusades. But Richard knew this wouldn't be enough. Henry II had gained a lot of his revenue not from regular public taxes, but by exploiting individual circumstances and feudal dues. And this is exactly what Richard does. Here's Roger of Hoveden. He put up for sale everything he had. Offices, lordships, earldoms, sheriffdoms, castle towns, lands, the lot. And here's an example. Of the 27 sheriffs of Henry's reign, all but five are replaced. The existing bunch are fired, and anyone who wants a job has to pay for it. The Bishop of Winchester paid £3,000 for the sheriffdom of Hampshire. John Marshall, William's brother, took over Yorkshire. Richard also raised money by punishing men that he thought had done a rubbish job, or worse, that had been corrupt. A chap called Robert Marmion and Ranulph Glanville were both fined £1,000 and removed from their jobs. Now Richard came in for a good deal of flack for all of this and making flippant comments like I would have sold London if I could have found a buyer didn't help. And then most outrageously of all he had the nerve to criticise English weather describing London as cold and always raining. Shock, horror and indeed gasp. But on closer analysis the situation looks a good deal less clear cut. After all this is the way it worked and had done for a long time. Offices were sold that was the whole basis of the system. You had to deliver a certain amount to the exchequer every six months, and as long as you did so, the world was then your lobster. It was a licence to print money. The other thing to note is that all the people who got jobs were experienced administrators, not a bunch of well-off flybinites. So interestingly, for example, although William Longchamp had to pay a massive £3,000 for the position of Chancellor, there was an Italian called Reginald who offered more. But Richard took the guy he thought would do a better job, i.e. William Longchamp. And finally, the guys that Richard sacked were sacked for a good reason. Ranulph Glanville, we know, was notoriously corrupt and venal. So the reason for the flack was really that it all happened in such a short time period. Normally these things happened every so often. But Richard was in a hurry. He had six months and then he had to be off. And it just made everything just a bit more obvious. So Richard basically selected men he trusted to hold the fort while he was away. In England, William Longchamp held the office of Justicia, Bishop of Ely, the Tower of London, and was also made a papal legate, since the Archbishop of Canterbury was going to go to the Holy Land with Richard. Richard also gets to the neck for his choice of William Longchamp as the man in charge when he's away, and it will indeed cause trouble later. 
but William's experience up to that point was impressive. Although it is then true to say that William was unable to deal with the trouble that John caused him. Elsewhere, Richard does similar things. He appoints seneschals for each of the areas of the empire. Meanwhile, Richard was preparing his army. He will eventually sail with over a 100 ships, 4,000 men-at-arms and 4,000 foot soldiers. Richard isn't just a showboater, he understands the importance of logistics. Before they go, Richard makes sure his army is ready, including, for example, 50,000 horseshoes from the iron mines of the Forest of Dean. So turning then to the areas of external threat, there were broadly five sources of threat. There was Philip of France, there was Raymond of Toulouse in the southwest, there was William the Lion of Scotland, and there was the Lord Rees of de Hubarth. That's four, and the number five is John. So maybe the external word is wrong, but he's definitely right up there, and Richard was well aware of it. Philip was the one that Richard was going to put on ice at the moment. He met him again in Gisors and confirmed his commitment to marry Alice. Again, he was a lying toad. Ladies and gentlemen, a lying toad, as we'll see in a minute. But it kept Philip off his back for a minute, and the guy was also going on crusade, so Richard should be able to keep an eye on him. Then there was William the Lion and Scotland. And here Richard wins himself plenty of plaudits from the Scots. You might remember that Henry had really put the heat on William after the revolt of 1173-4, and he'd forced him to accept Scotland as a fief from the King of England. In my humble opinion, Richard handles things rather well. He got his half-brother Geoffrey to bring William down to the court at Canterbury, and then negotiations followed. The result is called the Quit Claim of Canterbury of 1189. The Quit Claim basically returned the situation to the way it had been before Henry. This wasn't a declaration of independence as such. The King of Scotland becomes Richard's liegeman, for example. William paid 10,000 marks for the privilege. At the time as now, reaction was mixed. To the imperialists like Gerald of Wales, the comment was that it was a piece of vile commerce and shameful to the English crown. But those who felt a stable relationship of equals was the best approach left the council, in the words of Roger of Hoveden, praising the king's great deeds. I think the agreement did a great benefit, keeping William the Lion out of English affairs when John's revolt came. Now, it's a pretty historic document, the quick claim, so for those of you who like the original document thing, I've reproduced the agreement on the website, and it's not massively long. Wales, meanwhile, passed off less well. Lord Rees of de Hubarth had reached agreement with Henry II, and as soon as Henry died, Rees felt himself released from the agreement, and so he cut loose. Richard was well aware that this was going to happen, and as soon as his father died, he had sent a deputation to Rees, but to no effect. Richard then came to Worcester and met with the kings of Wales and got them all to agree not to attack while he was on campaign, an agreement that by and large they did stick to. And meanwhile, his brother John had managed to get Rhys to stop for a while and come to Oxford to meet with Richard. But for some reason, Richard refused to meet him. Now it's got to be said, this wasn't good. Rhys stormed back to Wales and by the time he died in 1197, he had all but pushed the Normans out of South Wales. And there's a map of this on the website. The career of Rhys was quite remarkable. Between his first appearance on the scene in 1147 to his death from plague in 1197, he dominated the Welsh scene. At the low point, his kingdom had been reduced to the Cantref Moor, and by his death, he dominated South Wales. 
Sadly, he was unable to persuade his sons to work together and support one of them to keep the kingdom together. And this meant that Dehubarth fell prey from the recurring problem of the Welsh kingdoms, of being split up between a number of princes. So why did Richard refuse to meet Rhys? Some historians have put it down to arrogance. Gillingham's explanation is that John and Rhys had stitched things up beforehand, with a deal that Richard didn't like one little bit, and he had absolutely no intention of supporting a deal between the two of them. But whatever, Richard's policy does not help the Marcher Lords while he's away. And so finally we come to John. By the end of December 1189, John could have absolutely no complaints about the size of his inheritance. Richard made him the Count of Mortain in Normandy. He then gave him Isabella in marriage. Isabella was the heiress of the Earl of Gloucester. So John acquired another title as Earl of Gloucester. Then he got the four southwestern counties of Somerset, Devon, Dorset and Cornwall a clutch of honours in the Midlands, and a whole load more that really I'm not going to go all through. Really, as brotherly love goes, it was quite a demonstration, and if my brother's listening, a Christmas present like that would be great. John now had a massive holding and enormous wealth and power. Love, of course, had nothing to do with it. Richard clearly had nothing but contempt for his little brother, but recognised that he needed to reach an accommodation. His approach was to make him so wealthy that he had that he'd have no interest in making a grab for more. At the same time, he started off by making an agreement that John would not enter England for three years, so top marks for openness, nul point for trust. Unfortunately, Mum thought he was being mean, so persuaded Richard to let this drop, which says very little for Eleanor's judgement. Richard was to be criticised for giving John the wealth and power he needed to challenge Richard's rule. And while Richard was proved to be right in a way that John didn't have the gumption to take him on, you've got to say that he failed to buy him off either and would probably have done better to have stuck to something more of a happy medium. But we're not done with the borders of the empire yet. Down in the southwest of France, in his real home of Aquitaine, Raymond of Toulouse was his traditional enemy, an enemy who had been humiliated frequently by Richard. So when Jerusalem had fallen and the head of the European states had signed up in a wave of enthusiasm, Raymond had managed to resist. I think the suspicion in Richard's mind was that the lad was up to no good and had spotted an opportunity to get a bit of his own back while Richard was away saving Christendom. This is crucial to understanding Richard and his attitude towards Alice. I do have to admit that Richard was a fibber. He had no intention of marrying Alice. He knew that he had to keep Philip at bay until Philip was far too committed to the crusade to cause any trouble for him. But in the background he had his own plans in Berengaria of Navarre. As you may or may not know, Navarre lies to the south of Aquitaine and is the traditional enemy of Toulouse. It's entirely likely that Richard would have known Berengaria from his time as Duke of Aquitaine and equally likely that the plan to marry Berengaria was formed before Richard left for Outremer in 1190. Marriage with Berengaria would form an alliance with her father, Sancho of Navarre, and keep Raymond of Toulouse in check while he was away on crusade. So there's then the rather extraordinary business where Eleanor accompanies Berengaria all the way to Sicily, where they join Richard and then eventually get married in Cyprus. Now if I'd been Berengaria's father, I'd have felt more than a bit dubious about having my poor daughter carted all over southern Europe. But to Sancho, this would have been a valuable alliance, and the game would have been worth the candle. So Richard had got things as prepared and planned as he could done. 
There were delays at the start of 1190, but by the 2nd of July, 1190, he had met Philip at Vesali in France, where the two of them swore to share everything they plundered on crusade. This, unfortunately, was an agreement that would turn out to have more than one interpretation. Nonetheless, the thing was done. Both kings were now set on their path. They rode down to Lyon and separated there, ready to meet up in Sicily. Richard had 37 ships, and the remaining 63 ships were late, having decided to take a few extracurricular activities in on the way down south. One of these activities, deeply appropriate to the most Christian of fleets, involved attacking the Muslim and Jewish communities of Lisbon. This is a distressing example of religious discrimination, but fear not. They immediately evened things up by descending on the Christian farms and vineyards and stripping them of fruit and raping the women before moving on. Richard himself sailed in a leisurely way down the coast of Italy, dropping off near Rome. You might have expected him to stop for a cup of tea and a quick how's your father with the Pope, given that the bloke was the leader of all Christendom, and Richard was on his way to save its furthest outpost. But when a cardinal turned up at Richard's camp suggesting just that, he was sent away with a flea in his ear. Another little incident before he crossed the Straits of Messina is awfully illuminating about the men. He entered a village in the Tour of Italy and heard the cry of a hawk from a peasant's house. Now, as you will of course remember from a previous episode, only noblemen were allowed to have hawks. So, filled with aristocratic indignant rage, Richard seized the bird and made off. Seized with rather more justifiable rage, the local villagers tried to reclaim their property and the King of England, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, was reduced to pelting the villagers with stone and mud to get away into his boats and across to Messina to meet Philip and the next stage of his journey. Which seems like a reasonable place to stop for the week. So everyone, have a fantastic time for Christmas and the New Year and all that sort of thing. Give your families a big kiss from me and I'll see you all next year. <laughs>